Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. We also interview people within the world of academia. And with me right now, I have a man who is assistant professor of media studies at the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns. His specialty is in critical media studies at the intersections of comedy, gender, Black pop culture. And if you've seen the Arsenio Hall episode on Vice's Dark Side of the 90s, then you will see his face and his eloquent voice talking so poetically about Arsenio Hall and its importance to pop culture. And ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause to Dr. Adrian Sibro to Beyond the Album Cover. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. And I'm just looking forward to being in conversation with you, Tara. Yes, sir. I appreciate you taking the time. So let's just jump right into it. Where were you born? Right. And what was the journey like for you going into academia from undergraduate, graduate to finally getting that PhD? Yeah, so um, I was born in a um, small town called Oceanside, California. It's uh, in San Diego County, uh, mainly a military town. It's next to uh, Camp Pendleton. Um, it's like the West Coast uh, military base for the Marine Corps. Uh, my father was in the Marine Corps. Um, and he ended up moving out west to work on the Camp Pendleton base. And we ended up, you know, being based in Oceanside, California. Um, from there on, um, long process, um, uh, working through, you know, leaving the military, working through, you know, just working class livelihood and, you know, oftentimes being poor, you know, just like trying to always being taught to like, you know, continue to work for what you have and um, supporting family. So workers mentality and the hustle has always been a part of what I do. So um, uh, undergraduate, I ended up uh, working my way through um, high school with really good, pretty good grades. And I was able to get a scholarship to go to UCLA for undergraduate. Um, and at UCLA, I studied um, gender studies and film and television, because I've always been interested in like what um, media is saying about, uh, particularly about black men, but about people in black people in general, right? So for me, it was important for me to get this education on, you know, um, how gender plays out in America in every in every kind of field of in, in every endeavor, how gender works, how how um, the kind of unconscious bias people have on gender, um, but also I was also interested in really um, how the media portrays that and how the media is invested in kind of recycling images like that along with race. Right. So with that, as undergrad, I you know, was a member of a fraternity, Black Fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha, Fraternity Incorporated, but I was also uh, hugely involved with the African Student Union at UCLA. I was the co-chairperson there. So in that aspect, I kind of was always, um, always about uh, how are Black people seen, how are they supported, um, and how do they build community. And um, in real life, through the you know, advocacy work, but also through, um, through media. And from then on, um, from after my uh, after undergrad, I actually went on to do uh, my master's at Columbia in uh, African American studies. Um, and there is kind of where I cultivated and realized that I want to continue going to academia um, and really looking at how the media's role in kind of you know recreating and rewriting the status of what blackness looks like over time. And I've always been interested in that, particularly how uh, how blackness looks in, in television particularly in like sitcoms and how comedy has always been like um, largely in control of, you know, white producers and white writers, even at the expense of black actors. So with that was, I've uh, always thought about how are we as black people being, you know, 
Um, how is our images being recycled over time? What, is our, what do our images say about us? Are we in control of said images, right? And also, um, no one image, you know, um, represents all of Black people. So how are we able to, you know, combine these different images and different identities to show this kind of status of Black culture being fluid, right? So from the masters, I um, ended up going back to UCLA for my PhD in film and television studies. So kind of these various different degrees, kind of combine them all together when I get back to uh, for my PhD at UCLA. And really it was about learning the foundations of film, media, and TV history, and really how race has, you know, um, been a particular, you know, um, intervention in, in um, film and television history and how film and TV history, reading it, watching it and consuming it is really another way of, you know, determining and um, being able to express, you know, American history, right? So what is it about American history we get from watching and um, consuming um, film and TV. And so with that, I focused largely on my dissertation work on Black sitcoms, mainly of the 70s, ones that um, created and directed and produced by Norman Lear and like Tandem Productions. Same, the same creator of, you know, All in the Family created um, Sanford Son, Good Times and the Jeffersons, right? So with that knowledge and figuring these things out, like, you know, it made me realize, like, okay, this, this man, this white man had a complete control in this era they call the social relevance era, this complete control of what Black on TV looks like. So what does that mean? What's that say for those um, actors, Black actors, writers, and producers who were part of these shows, but they don't get the credit for them? So my dissertation work, and now what's actually going to be my first book, um, is particularly on, you know, giving voice to the economics um, and the economics that were at stake with these black actors and uh, artists dealing with a white television industry that wasn't built for them. You know, it's through a process called what I call hustle economics, this idea of how black folks had to kind of hustle their way through an industry that wasn't built for them, hustle, hustle their way through life um, to largely not even be acknowledged for the work they're doing, for being written off of shows, for having to, you know, fight for um, rights on set that their white counterparts are kind of just naturally given, right? So since then, I have been um, graduated with my PhD and I've been at University of Texas at Austin since 2019 as an assistant professor here in film and television studies or media studies in general. And yeah, I teach um, you know, courses on film and social change, courses on like, about films that kind of pr promote, produce or around social justice issues. I also teach largely a course on um, Black filmmakers. So pretty much kind of after the Black Plantation era, how did Black filmmakers um, gain traction in Hollywood and how are they able to kind of um, create different ideas of what Blackness looks like? Um, a Black sitcom course that chronicles Black comedy uh, from television's roots to presently. And also just courses on film and television history in general as well. And that's where I'm at now. Again, working on this first book, um, it's contracted director University Press, and hopefully within you know maybe fall twenty three, um, book will be in hand, and you know I can revisit y'all here and talk about it in hand. Yeah, I definitely will cop the book, and I'm curious to know how long did it take for you to finish the PhD? Because I have a friend of mine; she completed a PhD in family marriage counseling over at University of New Mexico, and the grind mm -hmm. for a PhD for those of you that really want to try to do it, I hear it's not for the week. <laughs> no, it absolutely isn't. Uh, mine took five years, um, and I think that's kind of 
I mean, and also like, you know, a lot of life happens during a PhD, right? For myself, I didn't take any breaks between um, any of my degrees. Um, most, um, actually everyone, but being one of my colleagues uh, did, um, but yeah, I didn't take any breaks at all. So, you know, I'm a, a younger professor because of that, but also it's a, I very tired as well too. So just being on the academic grind for so long straight um, but for me, myself, it was five years, uh, about two years, two and a half years of actual in-class coursework, and the rest of the time on um, framing, constructing, defending, and working on a dissertation, um, which is like, you know, that that larger document that's like, you know, pretty much it is, in a lot of ways, what most people's first books are based off of the dissertation. So it's a large form document of original, original research that um, kind of determines your aptitude of knowledge within this field it's largely kind of proving um what you learned in this field and then creating your own original research off of it uh so yeah myself it was uh, five years and i and i've for most folks i've know um anywhere from like five to seven is is kind of the norm i do have some friends who finish in four um but yeah i think five is relatively fast but it's it's, it's like the the norm Right, because um, all, all depends on all depends on your field. Yeah, yeah, because me when I went and got my master's degree in education, I had a six year mm -hmm. gap between undergraduate mm -hmm. and being enrolled in school. But the program was yeah. set up for full time employees, so working during the day, mm -hmm. doing night schooling at night, night classes, you know, busting the hump, and it's not easy. So for those of you that really want no. to go into high academic, be prepared mentally. Physically, make sure your priorities are in order. And to me, it kind of feels like when you're doing your dissertation defense for your PhD, it kind of felt like that episode of Atlanta when they were testing the blackness where you had the panel of three <laughs> and they're just poking holes yeah. and everything, wanting to make sure that you knew your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's simply like, yeah, you're really in a room of people, you know, um, uh, you're in a room of people who are really just, uh, well, they have your work ahead of time. So they're coming with questions, but like how you present, you know, a microcosm of your larger 200 or 200 plus page work, you're trying to present like a, a microcosm of that within an hour. Right. And which you obviously can't talk about everything. You have to condense it to like one chapter, deeply talking about it, talk about your methods, talking about kind of what you gain from this, where you're like, uh, how you would take research in the, in the, how you would take this research further in the future. Um, and then, yeah, they're really kind of just grilling you mainly in like your, um, in your, uh, stage where you went to like qualify qualifying exams during your PhD what they're you're doing before that is like taking the summer or depending on what school program you're at like a whole semester and really you just like have a list of 20 or so books that you just like um you read in order to like gain your uh, complete knowledge of everything in the field so pretty much myself if my research focus is black media black television black film um the reputable books in my field that cover that subject, um, I should have a knowledge of how they all tie within one another and also how my research differs differs from all of those. So use all those to like apply it to like what I'm doing, um, but also use all those as springboards to kind of, okay, they all talk about this in this way. My research does this differently. So yeah, it really is them coming, just grilling your aptitude and knowledge from this particular uh, research focus. And it, it, it's, I'd be remiss if I said, like it, it wasn't one of the hardest things I've ever been through for sure. But uh, yeah, it's definitely not for the week. And, uh, and I think a lot of folks for myself going to the master's maybe realized I wanted to do it, 
Um, but I have some folks, friends who went to the PhD, realized the journey they didn't want to do when they left. And I think that, um, and I'm, I'm proud of them for having the courage to do that because it's hard to leave once you're in it because it's very selective to get in the PhD. Um, and you kind of feel like you have to do once you're in there. But yeah, it's not for everybody. And um, those who realize that's not for them go on to other careers that they do then, you know, they probably would have suffered throughout the rest of the process, right? So realizing it's, if it's for you or not, and there are a lot of ways to do that, uh, you know, getting a master's, thinking about doing your own original research, or really kind of just talking to someone in the field that you are, you know, possibly inspire, uh, you know, um, aspiring to be a part, that can like lead, way, lead, lead a lot of the, um, um, your interests and kind of figure out if that's the space for you or not. Right. And you mentioned earlier that you did your undergraduate and PhD work at UCLA. Now, did yes. the Black population over at USC and UCLA congregate a lot? And what was it like trying to get that HBCU feel at a PWI? And I had experienced with that myself going to a PWI undergraduate at University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And at my yeah. alma mater, the only way you knew the Black folks were on campus when it was basketball season, because we didn't have a football <laughs> team, and also when mm -hmm. it was time for probate. Right. And so the thing with, uh, you know, there are no, like, HBCs on the West Coast. Um, so I know, at least in North Carolina, like, you know, I have some across the state, you know, and you probably go to. But, like, yeah, for us, you know, we would, I mean, there were times, I mean, undergrad, I, I traveled to to Howard, I traveled to, you know, Atlanta, I did, I went to some other folks' folks's, you know, um, homecomings and stuff. So I definitely always kind of felt a, you know, missing some of those things, but I would, I would, I would do it all over again. I would go to the same school, but I think what, what we did, because again, there's no comparison to an HBCU experience, you know, um, as a black person at a predominantly white institution, you know, we, we are, especially at UCLA at the time, um, about 50,000 students, maybe, um, at, the, at that, it's better now. I think it's about 6% now, but at that point, it was less than three, maybe 2% black. And a good majority of those folks are athletes. But, but with it all, like most of us knew each other. So a lot of us came from programs like early summer school access programs where we kind of built relationships before camp school started. Um, but really, with such so, many, so little of us, we had a pretty strong community and like within our African Student Union, as what we call it. Um, and that was our ability to kind of every school in this UC system, like the eight UCs, we all, kind of that was the same makeup in all of them, uh, like you know Berkeley, Irvine, UC San Diego, um, you know uh, UC Santa Barbara, and some others. The makeup was pretty similar for all of them as far as Black students. So um, we have different conference, certain conferences where like all the Black students that go to that go to the UC schools, we would meet up at at like one of the schools and have like what we call our um, African Black Coalition Conference, pretty much a big conference of like all the Black students of the UCs, right? Uh, and that was our way of kind of just coming together and like one for advocacy, talking about like our struggles at our campuses, our collective struggles. Some schools have very specific struggles to so the where their where their location is, right? I think being in LA, we were a bit more of a privilege in a lot of ways because there are certain like Black communities throughout LA, right? But other folks who went to like you know a UC Merced or UC Irvine mostly white communities, mostly rich communities, right? Being black, living in those spaces. So they're having, everyone having their own specific issues, but the event will culminate with like, you know, a big social gathering. And it's like, you build these connections with people at other schools. And like, you know, like if you, if anyone went to college with me, black person went to college in the UC system, 
while I was there and they were involved, it's highly possible that I know them. That's how kind of close we tried to make ourselves even at other universities. But like, yeah, being in Los Angeles, you know, although USC is, will always be the, uh, the enemy in, in like in sports and, um, and everything. Um, there are some great people I met there, especially, you know, being in the fraternity, but we did our best as far as like using LA as a space for us to all congregate and try we, a lot of driving and traveling, you know, you, you make the most of the experience and you find that community. And that's the thing about the, the experience at a, a predominantly white institution is that you kind of have to do a bit more, you have to do more work to find your community. Um, but sometimes that kind of makes it mean some, that much more because you did the work to find them, you build these connections um, and you found like your niche. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it, it, is, it is tough, especially when like, you know, for me going on going on and um, the only place that like, you know, was majority black and all, all, all of my education was my time at Columbia, my master's, which is like probably the best time I've had in, in academia because I was getting my degree in African-American studies. It was a space that was built on African-American studies, built on black people, black livelihood, black culture. So, you know, it was a lot less of me explaining a lot of things. Um, but what it did was teach me how to be grounded in myself, my culture, but also like how to be able to communicate that to spaces outside of my own. So like this, these experiences definitely helped me out in that way. You know, I was able to, I am able to navigate these spaces because um, I had to, right? I had, I had to learn to do it in the most usually difficult ways because I would have faculty who didn't understand what I was trying to do because um, simply didn't have that cultural understanding. So it took, you know, a lot of work on my own part to um, make that relevant. Yes, definitely. You have to find your footing when you're Black at a PWI because not everybody is culturally competent enough to know the dynamics within the African-American culture. And you have to deal with the microaggressions, whether it be somebody making snide remarks, wanting to give you the brother handshake instead of a regular shake or asking you, right. so what do you think when you're the only Black in a class where there's not a lot of you, but at HBCU, you have the ability to be able to have all of your Blackness be fully embraced, yeah. not be unapologetic yeah. and walk in your Blackness and be celebrated for being Black and the richness of your history. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's the tough part. That's, that's the that's the when it comes to the struggle of finding your community because at the predominantly white school yeah it's um I'll go to class and I actually I always was the only black person in my class because like I, said, I was like a gender women's studies major so I was only male and the only black person too so having those two things but for me like you know I got an education um that I would never would have gotten otherwise so I don't regret it at all but there were times where it was difficult and like you know, I made use of office hours where there were like, but some professors still didn't get it, of course. But um, a lot of times the in-class work would be the difficult work to do or like the kind of isolated or feeling alone. So it was that out of class time, um, spending time with the community, friends and um, other groups that really was my safe space, my safe haven. And I think that we did our best because pretty much every student, and I mean, we were some, there's a lot, there's, so few of us amidst of uh, you know amidst so many so many students were the only black person in their course right so we all kind of were able to build community throughout that and like share information and like um, build study groups based off of like you know our larger um, black student union meetings and events 
So yeah, those communities um, came necessary. And also we found places in which we can fully be ourselves. And also came to a point that we realized that um, we had to use the knowledge, like, you know, we're at UCLA, so we're all, you know, capable students and we and scholars. We had to realize that we can, even though this, these spaces may not be built for us um, or to even include us, we are competent enough to make it do that. And we're competent enough to like use the work in these courses that we learned to reflect it back to our own communities and be able to, you know, in a, in a um, coherent way, like speak to our class about like how whatever subject we'll be discussing that day affects our, our community specifically. So that's another thing too, just encouraging folks to, yeah, the professor may not bring certain things up or the class might not focus on that, but find your ways to kind of gauge what you're learning in class and reflect it back to how it's working with you, with you personally and your own community. And that was been a, a way to like, if you can like competently, you know, express that in, in classes, I think that is a great way to kind of, um, you know, feel included in these spaces that just simply aren't built for you. Right, because, you know, when you kind of look at the college experience and with the, with everybody kind of finding comfort and familiarity with the racial groups, it kind of feels like in real life, higher learning. Um, to me, one of John Singleton's very most important films along with Boys in Hood and Poetic Justice, how, you know, you're not trying to separate yourself based on race, but you find comfort in that, but you just got to know at the same time, you can't be fully immersed when, when others try to come in and say, oh, it's a Black thing. We find safety in that, but you got to be able to allow yourself to understand that, okay, I can be in this world, but also I got to step here. And even though you feel like it's not your responsibility to have others understand what goes on in our culture, you do have to somewhat let them know and understand so that way they can be more culturally competent. Yeah, absolutely. And because uh, if that's what the world is, right, unless you're going to possibly be in an enclave of just Blackness your whole life, which is, I don't see that really happening in America, but it will really rarely happen. But I realized that, um, I was kind of forced to realize that with like, you know, the school I went to and the degree choice I made and even the career choice I made, right? Um, there are going to be spaces where you have to figure out how to live amongst, talk with, and like, you know, work with folks who necessarily aren't a part of the community, may not understand it. But yeah, it's about um, the work you do, being able to establish its importance and making its importance clear through the, um, through the years of work you do, you're, you're going to feel that that work is a part of you. You can't really, like, you know, it's, it's a part of who you are. So everything you do is, everything I do now is a Blackness is always in the in the forefront. It's always about popular culture, Black people, and um, it's always about educating on us navigating and infiltrating these spaces. And um, you know, I've basically you know white colleagues or or other colleagues who uh, or you know administrative individuals who don't understand that, don't see a point in it, see it's necessary. But you know, to a point that like. It's very easy to want to stifle that and not talk about it anymore for the sake of like just really even getting employed. But really, you think of the long term, you know, um, you're doing yourself a disservice by not talking about those things. And I think that, yeah, it's not about approaching it in a way that's like, you know, um, you can't enter here. It's just a black space. It's about, you know, um, making yourself or like teaching yourself and going through the trials of being, you know, 
able to educate for those who wouldn't even understand this cultural specificity, but also making clear to them the importance of it in this building of what America is like, but America's history is black history. And really this idea that um, opening yourself up to like, you know, the world won't, especially in America, won't be just this way, just you and your community at all, at all times. You need to understand that, like, you know, it's, it's about us we can all have our differences and, you know, we strive to kind of work in cohesion, but still like everything I'm gonna do is always gonna be black first. However, I can also, you know, teach about histories of oppression, media, all the things with two white students, two white colleagues, because I'm approaching in a way that, that reflects all of our history, right? Mm -hmm. Now it reflects how everyone has, uh, how this nation has come to develop. And I think that, you know, um, folks are starting to get that now. I mean, there's always gonna be some folks that, that won't get it or don't see the need to or think that this cultural racial specificity is a is, is a deterrent from making things equal but um you know it, it's really about just standing firm in um in what you in what you do and knowing that you know there will always be a need for wanting to be to have a comfort and a safety within your own community of course and you've always got to have those but um, the reality is finding a way to, you know, often, often it's kind of like coexisting um, with the people who um, may not share that community, but you share the same spaces with them professionally. Mm -hmm. You have to wear that dual mask and pretty much mm -hmm. learn how to code switch at an early age and go back and look at Blackish because Blackish was doing his job at pretty much bringing home the points that Blacks have to deal with in workspace life space where it's not a lot of you and you just have to feel like you're walking that ever so tight rope. Yeah, and it comes to the point that, you know, and I realized, I never thought I really could switch, but I realized that like, you know, there are moments that kind of unconsciously, there are things that like, obviously I would say here or wouldn't say there, but then it comes to a point that um, sometimes you realize code switching can be, and I think it, does, it depends on the field too. For myself in academia, code switching can become a deterrent because it at times has made folks kind of assume what your answer would be or assume your perspective on something. But I realize above all, if you know your stuff, you know, if you publish, if you read enough, if you know like the field and how, and like, and folks can't really argue your depth of knowledge on this, um, that's one of the strongest tools against these ideas of like, you know, trying to live within these code, these coded spaces the fact that like no one else can do what you do and you make that clear through your work you're doing through the word through like the uh the things you quote uh in books uh through your research work you make that clear that um yeah there may be a an established kind of like code here based off of a space that wasn't built for you but if you make it clear to them that like you know this is this is a you occupy a specific perspective that they can't get elsewhere um that's even stronger than having to switch on the code. And I think that, um, yeah, there, there are ways that, to navigate that, obviously, depending on the field. Right, and I wanna touch on the point that you brought earlier about the whole shows with Tandem, Norman Lear, and how it was black actors, actresses, but it was white creators, white writers, not a lot of us in the room. And then we progress right. to the 80s, you know, we see the likes of uh, Keenan Ivy Waynes, Robert Townsend, we saw what Eddie Murphy, did with Saturday Night Live and its box office superstar. And then the renaissance of the 90s with Def Comedy Jam, right. Martin, uh, New York Undercover, um, 
the guy from Philadelphia who we all know, but I'm not going to say his name. We know who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, what he did with his show, A Different World, Mm -hmm. and how we progress from, like you mentioned, you having to almost have that gatekeeper let you in. But by the time 80s and the 90s hit, and of course now, with Donald Glover in Atlanta, Issa Rae wrapping up Insecure, Jordan Peele with his bevy of movies, and how Black spaces are being put to the forefront was like, hey, we don't need your approval. We can just put it out ourselves. And I also should mention the work that John Singleton, Spike Lee, and the Hughes brothers did as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, though, too, it's like in a case like where I think um, it got to a point in the 90s mainly where they realized, which is why you have the 90s has that largest influx of Black TV like ever. Um, actually, you mentioned the um, Arsenio Hall episode on um, on um, Dark Side of the 90s on um, Vice. I actually was in two more episodes of season one was on the show Cops and one just released last week on, um, it's about 90s sitcoms in general. Um, and, and we were talking in that one about the fact that 90s is when television producers, um, advertisers, marketers, they realize uh, how much blackness sells. Right, so it got to the point that um, to this day, majority of these producers and executives in these companies are still white, but they deal with black, um, black um, content because they know how how profitable blackness is as a culture, uh, fashion, you know, music, art, everything. So when it comes to folks you mentioned, um, yeah, obviously it's the the amount of control that some black artists have. In their production is much better, right? It's kind of not even comparable to times in the '70s and such. But um, often that control is is still at the behest of a kind of larger, a white executive producer that has to has to give that access. Access and gatekeeping looks differently. It's more coded now, I would say. But also, it's like that access is given on like you know premium network TV, like a FX or like a HBO with like Issa Rae, right? Or so certain so like certain spaces allow that in a way that like network TV, like the, you know, CBS, NBC, Fox, ABC, um, those are still kind of like the traditional structures of what television was built off of. So those ones are still a bit more um, at times like old school as far as like, you know, um, how they represent race, which is why like you have kind of that one show that's like the black show every now and then, you know, like, you know, for for a while it was uh, blackish and now it's going to be Abbott Elementary, you know? So like there are times where, and the fact that, you know, we name these great black artists, um, but we can like name all of them, right? Versus we can't name all the white artists because like there's just, all of them are, right? So, and, and I think that they're kind of, it's always gonna be clear that there's like a deficit in the amount of black artists, but obviously we are moving in great ways. We are, um, and I think streaming has, has opened up that door a lot as well too, um, as like a new era of what media looks like. But, um, Largely, who these black artists are, we 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 know all their names, which is a great thing. We herald them, but you know, it's still the point that you know, there's such a plethora of white producers and white media makers uh, that, of course, the few black ones we we know and herald. But you know, when will be a point that you know, the marketing of the show isn't because it's a black artist, but because it's a good show, right? And um, but yeah, but boy, I I think that. Um, and looking at the 70s, right, um, I start there because I think it's such a pivotal moment that guys where we are here, because, you know, uh, before that, and like, 
fifties and sixties, uh, you know, they're, the idea of using TV as a, as a uh, space of social relevance to kind of move forward social justice issues, civil rights, et cetera, wasn't really, wasn't really seen as such. So the seventies being the space of like using comedy to do it as well was very important because it's kind of put this idea of what America thought to be funny, but also through like these subtle kind of jabs at the establishment, government, politics, um, in a way that can only be palatable with comedy to be that could soften the blow a bit. So the 70s was that space that did that. And, you know, with the white producer, especially like, you know, normally in Bud Yorkin through All in the Family, um, that show was the first show to kind of like do that in such an explicit way, but from what perspective of a white family. But that show, the cachet and like the stardom power, star power of that show really gave them the gamut to kind of do whatever they wanted. And then realizing that, okay, Black people are asking for a voice on TV to see themselves. Um, that's what gave them the, the energy to be able to do all these other different shows. But yeah, the Black artists and actors and actresses of the shows, um, we know them, you know, and we herald them, but largely the producers of these shows, the ones who were given like the credit as the authors of these shows. So a lot of my work is about giving voice to these folks who, um, to the mainstream, right. not to just black mm -hmm. right and it's also crazy that you mentioned that at the same time that these shows were up and running and everybody was running home getting in front of that big box tv this is before yeah. hd and plasma tvs kids and the streaming mm -hmm. stick you actually literally had to yeah. sit down watch it get the tv guide and if you missed it you missed it but at the same time shows such as um Ellis Hayslip's Soul. If you have not seen the yeah. Mr. Soul documentary, check that out. And also check out my interview with Melissa Hayslip and also Soul Train mm -hmm. and how in the cultural aspect, although they weren't sitcoms, there were music and cultural expressions of us. And both of those shows pretty much had a legacy that's still being talked about to this day. And I felt Soul definitely was ahead of its time and paid the way Absolutely. for a lot of the cultural competent shows that we see today with, you know, Black was talking about our issues, our voices, and, you know, just being bold in your Blackness. And of course, we all know Soul Train as an institution and a mainstay, and everybody has been influenced by the hippest trip in America. Absolutely. And I think those shows you mentioned, those were about um, 68 to about, um, so like those were like even leading up to these sitcoms of the 70s, right? This idea of like these public access television being the space of like uh, for black expression. So yeah, Soul being one huge one, um, Black Journal being another one, um, or the ones where they're, uh, uh, Say Brothers, it's a, it was a one based in Boston. Um, and another one called- um, Was it Tell uh, Like It Is or something like that? Tell Like It Is, Inside Bed for Soy Vescent, uh, like, you know, being like, about being in Bedside Brooklyn, it's like a local show about Black culture and community in Bedside, Brooklyn, right? So all these smaller shows, these niche shows about Black life preceded these sitcoms, but what it made, what it realized, folks realized, okay, there is a space for people to, Black people do, are invested in seeing themselves. And here, here we can see on the small scale, like let's make it big and national scale, right? There's a show called, excuse me, there's a book called Black Power TV by De uh, Devorah Heitner that focuses on these public access TV shows that really made way for um, blackness being seen in like the real life blackness through the arts, through you know local government, and um, through public access TV. 
that led way to you know how we saw blackness on in primetime television right and then with those shows and the sitcoms we can't mention all that without talking about the importance of a little network that was started in 1980 out in Washington, D.C. by Robert Johnson. Originally, it was sharing mm-hmm. time with the USA Network. Then a couple of years yep. later, they ended up becoming 24 Hours, and they brought you such classic shows such as Bobby Jones Gospel, Video LP, mm-hmm. Video Soul, Comic View, Midnight Love, Rap City, Video Vibrations, what I grew up on. So let's talk about the importance of BET, and then also at the same time, what Kathy Hughes was doing with... Uh, what was known at the time as Radio One, now Urban One, and how she took a lot of these small radio networks in and around DC, made them powerhouses, WHUR, home of the quiet storm, rest in peace, Mr. Melvin Lindsay. Then also um, Petey Green and his impact and how Petey Green's Washington, it was one of the first early shows that aired on BT during this infancy. And if you have not seen Talk to Me by Don Cheadle, with Don Cheadle playing Petey Green, do yourself a favor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the legacy of BET, it, it's, uh, it, it's hard to even like put into words. I know it, it has taken many like um, many shapes, many forms since its like inception, but I, no one could like um, deny its particular impact on, on the black community and largely how it, you know, the story of how it was sold and how it was created um, really seeing a space where black executive power was put forth to like really make a show for black entertainment um it's it's like a sometimes thinking about like it's just like amazing to hear because um a colleague of mine beretta shamade has a a book called uh pimping ain't easy selling black black entertainment television this idea about where it started as this kind of public affairs um politics like news space and kind of end up kind of more going more towards music pop culture i mean it, it flowed it flowed flowed with what's happening in culture in america right so like music black popular culture um more like lifestyle more like reality stuff nowadays but it really was the space of uh yeah because like you mentioned you had like ebony and jet magazine these spaces where what they would literally do was be a page on, in one of the in one of the magazines saying like what black people will be on tv what day you know, like folks were like, were, were like fiending to see black people on TV so much that the, they actually had to go to these magazines to know what people will be featured on, on, a, on a show. Even if it's for like one scene, it'll say like, this person is in this show airing on this day, right? And so to have an entire network for black people, not just featuring them in like, you know, as side supporting characters or actors, but for them, a space that's created for them to talk about a larger black community. Um, it was it was everything in the moment, right? And, and, and it led a way to realizing how cable can work in America and how um, how cable really became this new aspect of like, you know, newer technologies and focusing on more niche audiences um, to a fact that like, you know, TV was meant for largely in its inception about this idea of family viewing. So every show was meant to, even if the show was majority of a black audience, sorry, majority of black cast, it was really written for everyone to be able to enjoy and consume the show, right? Um, so with BET, its niche was particularly made for black people to enjoy and consume the entirety of the network, not just one particular show. So with that being the impetus behind it, um, it changed the culture of how 
networks as a whole tend to or try to focus on um, different niches, in this case, a, a Black niche. And yeah, like you mentioned um, Radio One, you know, just another space where, you know, to this day, radio has been that kind of um, that space where Black folks have kind of also been so important to communicating Blackness, right? Kathy Hughes, remember, I think she's second richest Black woman in the United States. Um, and she's been, you know, pivotal to Black communication, right? And of course, like, you know, Tom, you know, Tom Joyner, in the Tom Joyner Morning Show, like how long that lasted as like this space of uh, talking about Black culture, livelihood, and lifestyle. And I think now too, we even shows like, you know, The Breakfast Club, for instance, right? Um, definitely much more in the pop culture, um, music, entertainment um, style, but still like even now, if you think of politics, every like more liberal leaning political official um, has to like go through that show as a stop in their campaigns now. So this idea of blackness being this um, now certified and, you know, I would say, if not respected, uh, valued place that people realize that the black votes, the black dollar is so important to, the, to their success. Um, BET is one of those spaces that kind of made that clear to everybody, like, oh, a network catering to black per perspectives um, can be profitable. So let's take the black, the black eyes and the black money seriously. Right, and BET was a lifeline for Black artists because, as you know, at this time, MTV rarely, hardly ever played Black artists. You know, Rick James yeah. raised fuss about it. Then, of course, there's an infamous interview with David Bowie being interviewed by Mark Goodman of MTV, and he was questioning MTV's practices of not playing Black videos. And, of course, yeah. he had the standard line of, well, MTV is, you know, rock, AOR, and that doesn't really fit our niche you know but if you take a look at pre-michael jackson mtv post michael jackson mtv that pretty much changed the game because walter yetnikoff who was president of columbia cbs records pretty much called mtv told them i'm pulling all the videos from your library if you do not play michael jackson and then that led for mm -hmm. prince and all the other black artists that ended up coming down the pipeline and then vh1 hired legendary radio programmer dj the chief rock of frankie crocker as one of the early djs of vh1 and they were more open in the pan black artists where mtv was still kind of slow to the party but then ramped up full speed when uh rest in peace uh ted demi uh put together yo and tv raps mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i mean you, you laid it out right there i think that yeah it was a space that uh had to you know accept blackness like like through threat really through threat of losing um you know a huge backbone of what moves the market as far as like you know culture music and media and you know and, and like fashion and and just like uh art right and um yeah yo mt raps like was a huge space for like that like you know um wasn't anything like it before you know fat five freddy brought folks out to kind of really bring rap to the mainstream because it still was, you know, considered like a, like a low art. So it wasn't considered like a reputable type of music and, and what MTV was trying to establish, but, you know, we can go back and we know who we created rock music in the first place. Right. So, and then that got whitewashed and we got written out of that history often. So it's really this idea of um, a purely American and black and Brown art form like hip hop um, invading this mainstream 
and MTV, you know, at the end of the day, these networks only do what they're going to only do things for profit. You know, I think oftentimes that's what I learned a lot of my work is that like, yeah, shows like, you know, networks like Fox, for instance, in the nineties, they had to have this plethora and that seemed like someone so invested in black popular culture, because again, all the great shows, the nineties were largely through Fox it's largely because Fox was trying to compete with other networks. Um, they, they were the new network trying to compete with everyone else. So they, their niche was, let's get the young urban crowd, um, give them the money they want. And then once Fox's name was big enough, they abandoned blackness, right? So really every network on TV, you may think that they are you know, invested in certain things, but they're invested in what makes them profit. So then these are still businesses. And MTV knew that you cannot ignore um, could not ignore hip hop because it's force and how much money it's making and how it's like really dominating as this new space in popular culture. So you can't ignore it. You have to join in the fact that, you know, this is, this is an, uh, this is a, an art form that is going to be consumed. And they made the smart, you know, financial choice and invested in it. Um, but yeah, like, like most of these, most of our images, in our spaces have, have um, had to be infiltrated because a fight from us. And that's just like kind of a story of how American media, just like America in, in general, has has gone over time. Right. You literally back in the day had to fight to get rap on the radio. Radio stations would yeah. segregate rap to nights where it wouldn't affect the ratings, but it really wasn't until uh, Mr. Yeah. Magic Rap Attack on WBLS, originally on WHBI and other underground mix shows, college radio, that a lot of mainstream radio stations said, hey, we got to start doing what they're doing and put it on mainstream platforms and then you had um 98.7 kiss in new york with uh, dj red alert chuck chill out and various mm -hmm. different locale mix shows on urban radio stations across the country i mean this was back in the day where you would have singles that would say without rap edit and with rap and liners that say and no rap that's how strong we <laughs> oppose people in management were to rap and let's say the new yeah. swing era because that era was young it was vibrant it wasn't motown and incorporated rap which wasn't for them it was for our generation because i consider myself a part of that generation growing up in the mm -hmm. early mid 90s early 2000s that era was particularly you know for me and how it just gave r&b a shot in the arm and then when you mentioned the shows on fox like martin new york undercover in living color arsenio and i think in hindsight fox dropped the ball with not locking arsenio and having be their flagship show to compete with the yeah. other late night shows like carson and they to come with leno and letterman because if you look at late night even though now with streaming and other options it's still considered the last bastion of middle america to me white picket absolutely fence, dog in the american yeah. dream Absolutely. When it comes to media, that was one thing that started like early 50s. It's been that. That's one of the, like, you know, they stop variety shows aren't really a thing anymore. But yeah, the, the late shows or the late night shows, that's the one thing that kind of has uh, remained consistent since like television's inception. And it really was about this idea of how can we talk to the real America, right? That's, that's how uh, late night TV talked about it. And the, the real America was that blue collar middle America how can we reach them um, and how can this show be something that's relatively, you know, um, universal to what real America is. And yeah, it is that bastion of the middle American working class 
folks. Um, and still to this day, this is why every major, you know, um, Tonight Show host has been, you know, a white man, right? So this idea of this image of what America looks like has been consistent since the inception of, of, of television and the and the uh, late shows. Right. And then when you look at it in live at in living color, because I know a couple of years ago they were trying to do a reboot, but for other reasons it fell through. Do you think a show like In Living Color could be made today given you know how we are as a society and everybody's so quick to point out cultural appropriation and we're very culturally sensitive to race and how back then you know, men on film definitely could not be made today. Right, right, right. So I think it can be, but not on like Fox or not like on like a network channel. It has to be like a premium cable or cable channel, like a like a Comedy Central or like, um, you know, or some other like pay for type of network, largely because like, you know, um, a lot of rules and laws are different. So, like when you look at back at Fox when they first when the show first came out, Fox was so new, so everything was new. So they didn't really everything was about was about making spectacle. Everything was about the shock effects because that's going to keep people coming back. But now, yeah, a lot of the cultural sensitivities, which you know are you know, um, which should be taken seriously, a lot of them they affect what we see on you know um, on these these um, network television channels that are really there was like the free TV meant for everybody, you know, ABC, CBS, CBS, NBC, and Fox. Those are the channels that are kind of meant for everyone, which is why like all the major sports games are on those channels and all like, you know, um, Olympics, all these things are on those channels because those are still the most like watched channels because you don't need like premium cable to watch those. All you need is like a, a you know, a, a network hookup. So on channels like that, no, a show like that could not exist in the same way. I mean, course it can exist um because you know a saturday night live exists but particularly with, from a black perspective and from the comedy in the way that kind of unabashed way that they did it then it wouldn't land the same way and i don't think it would, i don't think it would be as successful on those channels but like on a premium network channel or a premium cable channel i do think it's possible but yeah it's still this idea of like how things are palatable you know i look back at like the dave Ch like the dave Chappelle show right i think that was probably the kind of last fashion of like you know what a good kind of variety-esque show looks like but you know that's one particular person doing that most of that those skits but i think it would need to land in a, in a on a, um, a channel like, like that for it to right. kind of be successful and do what it needs to do right i agree and sadly the richard Pryor show which had a short mm -hmm. i mean literally short run on nbc ten, 10 episodes would have benefited from streaming and you can kind of see the lineage with Chappelle's show and how he was directly Absolutely. influenced by Pryor and Dick Gregory and, and it's pretty much considered comedy is considered the last form of truth telling and now you feel like you can't even do that because everybody's quick to point out you know PC and you know we're culturally aware yeah. that you can't really tell the truth without stepping on some toes yeah and it has a lot of folks moving to like uh to like Netflix or other streaming services. And the large part is that, look, again, these networks specifically um, were meant for universal audiences. So it's about this idea of, and what's usually universal usually means, you know, I mean, there are some shows that kind of find their way around it, you know, but like if you're talking straight comedy um, to the effect of like some of the predecessors we talked about, um, 
a lot of those rub too many people the wrong way or rub those the power those with the, the powers that be the wrong way usually so when it comes to those appearing on these certain faces that's why a lot of shows like you know end up getting like you know canceled i think like the carmichael show was a really good show um had was really moving forward through like it's the first three seasons and then you know Gerard carmichael just felt it wasn't the space for him anymore and kind of moved on to doing more stand-up stuff outside of network tv but it really comes this idea of like um a power of like a control over your actual narrative, um, which again, at this network space, there's so many, like so much bureaucracy there too. Like, yeah, you can probably be the showrunner creator, like Kenya Barris of Blackish, but you still don't have the final say what's on the show because you're not an executive, right? right. Uh, so those power structures really impede a lot of folks from really being able to um, make certain discussions or comedy happen. So yeah, it's a difficult space to think about kind of what, where and how comedy and where is expressed now. Um, you realize it's on the streaming services or on like the premium cable. So which in an effect is, I was talking about is like, you know, um, difficult for folks because, you know, that takes, you know, you need money to afford to watch these things, you know, and all these streaming services aren't cheap, right? So the access to these shows and to this, to this other like forms of popular culture, um, is not for everyone everyone has the ability to see these things and that leads to again a kind of an imbalance of how media can be consumed and who's actually being able to see these things yeah all your streaming services together is just about as high as the price of cable and your bill is just as long as the cvs receipt but i want to do my arsenio pose really quick and i want to shift gears real quick to talk about the movement that we're seeing in college athletics you know tradition is getting blown up for the money, you know, UCLA and USC are going to be hopping to go to the Big Ten, get that Midwest That's money. And then also you're seeing mm-hmm. the NIL and young men taking control of their financial power and saying, hey, if you want me, you got to pay me instead of being like SMU and having boosters pay under the table. We're going to bring it yeah. on the table. And then being at Texas, where, of course, you know, Texas is football crazy and how it's pretty much come on down, bring your oil money, bring your bag money, whatever money you get. I'm open to the highest yeah. dealer. It's like real life blue chips out here in these streets. So what's your thoughts on NIL and athletes pretty much taking control of their power and standing up and using their voices to speak out on social injustice issues, especially after seeing what happened with Colin Kaepernick and then Previously, we can mention Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, and then yeah. far back as Juan Carlos and uh, Tommy Smith in '68. Uh, yeah, um, I, I I love the fact that athletes are are able to do this now. Um, I, I love the fact that they're we're knowing them as voices, and we're knowing them as not just athletes. And I think that's an important thing too. I think we've been in a place so long that um, you know, and I'm a huge football fan, so like. I think we've been in a place so long that um, everyone has kind of just considered these people like athletes and like their livelihood hasn't been something that people consider or even think about. But I look at other folks, I look at folks like, you know, um, Naomi Osaka in tennis and like Simone Biles and like gymnastics, like young black women, um, tops of their fields, speaking about their mental health and speaking about the reality of things that people would as much as majority of people just viewers of them, they're pretty much like, look, just, we don't care about that. Just do your, do your, you know, be athletic, right? And I, I, I'm glad that we're seeing them as human now, but going on like the college aspect, you know, these young black men who are like, you know, denying division one NCAA contracts to go to HBCUs, right? We're getting more 
Um, and you see like Deion Sanders, you know, being a, a, a football coach at Jackson State, you know, at, at HBCU and encouraging students to go there. I think it's a beautiful thing to see because um, a lot of the history of how the NFL was built was built off of, you know, people who went to HBCUs as well, too. But now that those aren't seen as, are seen as less than when it comes to, you know, college athletes moving on to the next phase of, of their careers. So this ability to speak up and against these things that I've I'm always, I'm always, um, sometimes I'm kind of afraid for these athletes though too. You know, I always wonder like, like a Kaepernick, you know, unfortunately he was one who had to be kind of the uh, martyr in a lot of ways. Uh, um, I'm always proud of the work he did and proud of like how he's able to speak up. But uh, sometimes I do feel like a fear for some athletes as well coming after that, um, if they would be barred and blacklisted this in the same way. And it's, it's just different, definitely a different, difficult pill to swallow, but I, I love the courage of those who are who are willing to do that and i think that you know kaepernick as an individual you know took a lot of the burden for many folks being able to even think about doing that um but again we think of power structures we think of the fact that there are you know no like 100 percent like you know uh, nfl like owners uh i think there's one actually but like there's compared to like you know of all the teams where the power lies and like Obviously, the sports, if you're talking about the NFL football specifically, can't live without, you know, black bodies being and black people being the ones to, to uh, play these sports. But um, unfortunately, a lot of folks in these power structures feel that a certain individual will be expendable or like, oh, you're just, I'll get, wait next year to grab somebody else who doesn't have a perspective on this stuff. We'll just play. Right. So I'm always kind of fearful of talking about football specifically. My, um, black brothers that like really are able to express themselves and usually it's those who are that good that they know they're going to go somewhere anyway and I or like or they're like kind of they're kind of um guaranteed these spaces that not everyone may be guaranteed so it's always a always sometimes a fear for me but um those who have the courage to do so I think and I, I think these universities have made the money off their backs for so long so I think it's good that they're now getting these things but my main thing is just for the protection that they always have someone to help manage their th these contracts manage finances because above all i don't want them to get taken advantage of as well too because so many of these folks come from difficult backgrounds where not knowing how to manage money or or like they're having to you know take care of their entire families while in college when they get to probably another level of, of, of their careers so it's a difficult thing to think be so young and to have so much of the world thrown at you um while still like trying to figure out who you are so my main thing with all this stuff is um making sure that a lot of these athletes don't get consumed in these things and that they actually have support like trustworthy support through these things but above all like yeah they deserve this work because yeah i'm thinking the ucla thing you know i don't like i'm you know diehard bruin forever watch all the games have season tickets I don't like that they're moving uh, to conferences, but I get it to the fact that, you know, all these things to a university are, are businesses and football being that sport that makes the most money. And also if you're not, if you don't have those media eyes and like those broadcasting eyes on you, like the schools in the Midwest do or in the South do, um, a lot of money's being lost, right? Um, on a aspect of like camaraderie of like being with like other teams in the West Coast, you know, there's a certain culture there that you know just just so different from you know uh force in the midwest that it's going to be a 
a very interesting transition process. It's a couple of years in a lot of ways for like recruiting, lifestyle, livelihood, and all that. But um, we're here now. And we're just gonna see how it's gonna go. But yeah, it's gonna change a lot of the way in which recruiting is done, how the sport is played, and largely kind of um, how much of it is like for the pure joy of the sport versus just profit. Right, and it kind of makes me wonder what's going to happen to the bowl alignments because, you know, with the Rose Bowl, Pac-12, and Big Ten, and, you know, you mentioned USC, and, of course, you had Texas, best college football game I've ever seen in my life, 06 Rose Bowl, Texas versus USC. I was happy that USC lost when Vince Young scampered into the touchdown. I was super happy. I I hated that USC team, Matt Leinart. Reggie Bush, Lindell White, Bush, Dwayne yeah. Jarrett, all y'all. I hated y'all. I hated y'all. I hated y'all. I hated y'all. Uh, but amazing, amazing game. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you look back in hindsight, you know, those USC teams were great, just like how back in the 80s and 90s, those University of Miami teams, the 90s, Nebraska Corn Huskers with uh Tommy Frazier, Scott Frost. We could go down the list. And it's still kind of hard for me to see Maryland in the Big Ten because I grew up in Tobacco Road, ACC country, and used to see right. them in the ACC. But it always, like you said, it's all about the money and will blow up tradition for the sake of money. Now, what's your thoughts on Texas landing Arch Manning? If you don't know who Arch Manning is, look up Peyton. Oh, yeah. Look up Eli. Oh, yeah. Look up Archie. Look up Cooper. Uh-huh. Come from that <laughs> yeah. lineage. Omaha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. Absolutely. He, uh, I mean, that's amazing for Texas. Uh, you know, I've been here about three years now. So I go to some of the games. Um, culture here is very, it's way different. Um, it's, it's, they love it here. Um, but, you know, he had the choice to go anywhere he wanted. And I think that uh, I, I want to see what they offer, what they offered him. You know, I feel like they must have sold him, they had to have sold him the world because he's not like your typical, you know, um, typical recruit by any means. He has, you know, Hall of Fame uncle, you know, will be Hall of Fame, well, will be Hall of Fame other uncle, you know, uh, grandfather was in. So everything, he, he knows the process. He like uh, more than probably anyone, right? And, and and his family lineage can get him into any office, any space. You know, there is no ambiguity there. So for him to choose here, there had to be a, the pitch had to be amazing, right? So I think it's great for Texas. Um, I think that uh, it's going to bring a lot of folks' attention back to this because this conference has been, well, Texas in general with the Big 12 has been like, you know, start off the season with great rankings, but hasn't, um matched up to it throughout the season so i think this will bring a lot more attention and energy back to the space um as long as they so long as they recruit folks that can like you know manage with arch but uh yeah i mean i think it was a huge obvious marketing move but they had to for arch to come here they had to give him something more than that because again he's not a regular recruit he he he's his uncle could call up any coach in the nation um and and get a and get a meeting so it's about really what it is that he's going to be offered, like, you know, and how he's going to fit into this mold here. And I think that, you know, he has all the tools in his holster. Um, he has all the advantages. So it's really just about how they develop a team around him. And, you know, Texas has a brand new coach as well. I think this, I think it's probably be his second or third year. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that happens. But that's not till like what, uh, fall of 23. That's, that's next year, I believe. Yeah. Right. Cause it's kind of crazy uh, to see freshman. how, 
you know, he kind of broke the SEC tradition, even though Texas is going to be soon joining the SEC with Oklahoma because, you know, Peyton went to Tennessee and Eli yeah. and Archie went to Ole Miss. Now he Ole decided Miss. to come mm-hmm. on down to the Big 12. And as we know in Texas, high school football is king. You know, watch Friday Night Lights, watch the 30 for 30, uh, what caught a loss and how Texas just takes the obsession with high school football to another level. Their stadiums look like NFL stadiums and how coaches are openly recruiting kids in sixth, seventh, eighth grade to come play for their high school so that they can build dynasties. So can we talk Mm -hmm. about the juxtaposition with how some of these kids are kind of already experiencing what it's like to be a five-star recruit, of course, with NIL now in the play, but you kind of had a little deal of that on the high school level, given how ferocious and how competitive Texas high school football is. Well, yeah, part of it is social media as well, too. Folks are able to, um, you know, create their own highlight tapes, send send their information to other folks, build followings that largely make them, you know, kind of larger than life in high school already, right? To a point that wasn't been able to wasn't able to be done in previous generations too. So you add all these things together with NIO with like, you know, incentives, bonuses, like off season, like, you know, um, club teams, all that. We think about like basketball and football as well too. It is a whole different culture that um, the fan base of these individuals begins at like age 14 for a lot of them, right? So, you know, in aspect of Arch Manning, you know, he, he, he had all the, he grew up within this dynasty. So we had all the tools, the tools of his exposure already. So like, you know, uh, a person that, you know, money was never an issue for him or like facilities or going to training camps, all those various things where other folks have to kind of fight more for those things or fight to get a space, fight to afford them or really find their own way to, to make themselves their name popular. His name itself has a history towards it. Other folks have to make their own name. So they resort to things like social media and other spaces to publicly like, you know, build their profile. So I think that plus NIL plus folks like, you know, there are folks now getting verbal commitments at age 14 or 15, right? Um, choosing what college they want to go to already. And I think, you know, for me, like, I love that idea of student athletes because then they folks can make their way to college, get it paid for and get an education. I'll always be in support of, but you know, these things are something that I think that no one could have saw coming largely with like the way that's this, this advent of social media has really recreated how recruiting is done, how outreach is done. And really with NIL added to that, how folks now are expecting something because their likeness is being used, their their athletic ability and their, you know, um, athletic prowess is being used for the benefit of these big universities. So yeah, let them get the piece of the pie. Yep, get the bag, that. get the bag. And we have mm-hmm. a Bruin to thank for that, Ed O'Bannon. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Mr. Ed O'Bannon. And uh, before we wrap and give shout outs and current projects and everything, I want you to talk about briefly the impact of Houston hip hop with Rap-A-Lot, everything that came out of there, Chopped and Screw Culture, DJ Screw, then of course UGK out of Port Alpha, Texas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so my... Uh, experience with Houston hip hop has largely been like new. I mean, growing up, like being from California, you know, growing up, you start to hear the influences like of like DJ Screw, you start to hear, you know, the uh, the Mike Jones, the Paul Walls, the, the, all the folks that kind of come from this lar- longer era of like of, of Houston hip hop. So my in my experience with it has kind of been more, more new kind of coming here. But, you know, um, 
a lot of folks coming from that space, you know, the one now who I really enjoy, um, his name Toby Niway from like, you know, from, he's from A-Leaf, Texas, which is like right outside of his Houston area, like Southwest Houston. Uh, but you can kind of hear the inflections in his, in his artistry and his work that are very much traditional to like, you know, the Houston sound and the soundscape of like what built Houston as this kind of powerhouse for the hip hop scene. So yeah, I'm, I'm still myself learning um, that era because I grew up in, you know, West Coast hip hop, which is like, if you're, if you're from there, you're entrenched into that. So I grew up with, with that deeply entrenched in me. So like folks like, you know, Kendrick Lamar, for instance, and like folks who come from this tradition of, you know, Dr. Dre's making productions and, and influences um, and NWA, those have always been the folks that were kind of drilled in me from at my adolescence, but actually moving around, like moving to New York a bit, um, living in Philly for a year, um, back to California, then now here, I think I'm realizing so much more now how much the culture of a specific area you could hear that in their music. So I think that now um, that I've actually been getting into more of the Houston based or, you know, Texas based hip hop as, as of not being in here. Right. You know, because, you know, me being from North Carolina, you know, we mm-hmm. dabbled and dabbled in everything because we were right in the middle because we were hearing what was coming right. out of Atlanta, what was coming out of Houston, what was coming out of Memphis, what was coming out of New York, what was coming out of yeah. LA. So you pretty much had a buffet everything and then of course then of course you know in the 90s west coast hip-hop was at its peak with you know nwa dre death row uh what was coming out of the bay with e40 too short mac dre hammer far side souls and mischief loonies uh ice t of course you know legendary album ryan pays and it's still shocking to me Mm -hmm. to see him on law and order to this day but I knew him as <laughs> Scotty Appleton from New Jack City and Danny Up yeah. from New York Undercover. Absolutely. I'm still having forgiven him for killing off uh, Michael Michelle. You know, Malik was <laughs> sick. Yeah. He was sick yeah, when he yeah. came, showed up in the bedroom and, uh, you know, shout out by uh, Michael Michelle. But before we conclude, Dr. Sebro, <laughs> any shout outs you want to give, current projects, plug your social media, sir. Yeah, yeah. I mean, current projects right now, um, like I mentioned, I'm working on getting this book published for right now. Um, it's called Hustle Economics, excuse me, it's called Scratch and Surviving Hustle Economics in the Black Sitcom with Tandem Productions. Um, hopefully slated around like um, a fall of next year, fall of 2023 release, but I'm um, working to get that through the pipeline through Rutgers Press. Um, other than that, I'm just, uh, yeah, I recently featured in three episodes on um, Dark Side of the 90s on Vice TV, uh, episode one, three, and seven. Episode one is on the Arsenio Hall show. Episode three is on the television show Cops. And episode seven is on um, Black sitcoms of the 90s. So yeah, I, um, I really enjoyed that process of working with this, with, with this, um, with this uh, company and producing that through, um, through Vice. And I was able to you know, talk some of my knowledge on um, TV and popular culture. So definitely catch those. Um, other than that, my, um, my Twitter is a Cebro PhD, S-E-B-R-O-P-H-D. Um, and I can be reached there, added me there. Um, just love talking all things, you know, all things black and, um, you know, everything black. And I, and I am just happy to be here discussing these things with you. I'm looking forward to a, a good fall semester here at UT. And there's like just so many things now I think are just um, uh, looking well moving forward.
So again, thank you for having me here. Right. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And be sure to keep updated with the podcast at facebook.com slash beyond the album cover because this podcast is for us, by us, for everybody as well. But it's blackity black, black, black at the core. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big thank you to Dr. Adrian Sebro, assistant professor, University of Texas, mm -hmm. Hook'em. Thank you once again for coming on, sir. Appreciate having me. Thank you. Yes, 